Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on innovation and leadership. On this episode, I'm really excited to have Andrew Rubin, founder and CEO of Lumio. Uh, Andrew, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. So um, you guys got a ton of attention at our shop when, uh, when we saw, I think it's like 18 months ago, you did this round at like a $2.7 billion valuation or something. Uh, that's, uh, that's quite the accomplishment, my friend. Thank you. Really, really proud of the team, quite honestly, for giving me the story to be able to go out and do my job, which was to raise that round. It actually was, it's hard to believe it's going on almost two years ago now. And as you said, it was done at a $2.75 billion valuation, which, uh, you know, it was a long time ago, but believe me, I still remember the day we announced it as if it was yesterday. I'm sure you've only grown since then. So um, uh, I have a, a bunch of questions I'm fascinated with the fundamental premise that you guys have gone after the market. But l let's start with elevator pitch. People don't know Lumio. Tell us who your ideal customer is. Tell, tell us how you help them. Sure. So the term zero trust has obviously become very pervasively used in cybersecurity now the last few years. And within zero trust, there are a couple of really core strategic security controls that companies are adopting in order to help them achieve zero trust. And one of them is segmentation. And so a lot of times what you hear is Illumio is the zero trust segmentation company. We were definitely early in the space. Some would say that we were there or right near the very beginning of the segmentation space and certainly part of the zero trust movement. And what we did is we started about a decade ago thinking about how do you build a software platform that allows organizations to reduce the risk of a catastrophic breach or a really catastrophic ransomware event by essentially making sure that when somebody does get hit with one of these unfortunate incidents, that you use zero trust and segmentation as a way to contain how bad the event itself is. You can't stop breaches nowadays. You can't stop ransom, not all of it anyway, and we all know that. Our job is to try and make sure that when you do get hit, that it's a small security event and not a catastrophic breach or ransomware event. So I was, I don't know. As I've been getting ready for the interview and watching your interviews and reading your stuff, um, analogy came to mind, and it's probably not good. So you can you can tell me where the analogy breaks down. But I think like this idea of we're going to keep all the bad guys out all the time has I've really struggled with. You know, on the show we've had a lot of folks from the classified units of the Special Operations Command, and uh, you know, twenty five year CIE case officers, and and um, you know, one of the guys who is at Norton before they sold to Intel, used to work on an offensive team for the agency, for the CIA, and told us kind of like how easy it was for him to get in so many places, right? And, yeah. and um, I've read a number of like social engineering books, Kevin Mitnick and others, right? And yeah. this idea of like, we're going to keep it safe all the time everywhere, I, I've always like, it's fundamentally been like, yeah, but I know, I know what, I know guys who can get around that. Like that doesn't, makes sense. And so here's my analogy. It's like, I don't plan on crashing the car. I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to not get hit and not hit anyone else. But I'm going to have a seatbelt in the airbags anyways, like for the just in case factor. I'm like, realistically, I can't control who else is texting and driving. So I may as well like wear a seatbelt, even though I don't plan on getting in a car crash. Is that, does that work at all for you? I, I, it absolutely works perfectly. It should, quite frankly, not just for me, but for everybody. I am going to add my own analogy on, and it's one I've been using for many years. But let's start with yours. So the reality is that if you think about the seatbelts or you think about the airbags or all the other safety devices that are built into a car nowadays, everybody thinks that you're building it 
to protect the damage that you're going to do. But you actually said something really important there, which is you don't control the millions of other drivers on the road and whether they're texting or drinking or doing all sorts of other things they shouldn't be doing instead of focused with two hands on the wheel. Those safety precautions are there as much to protect you from doing something that could harm you as they are from everybody else around you. And in the world today, quite frankly, it's really complex, really scaled world that we're living in and nowhere more so than in cybersecurity. So I, I'd make two comments. One is my analogy, which follows yours. I like yours better, to be honest, because it's more relatable for the average person. We, most of us get in a car and drive or get, you know, get, get in a, a cab or an Uber at some point and sit there and hope the person driving doesn't do anything terrible like text. The one that we've used for years is we talk about a submarine. And although most of us, including me, have never driven a submarine or maybe even been in one, we all know that even from four or five years old, if you hand a kid a crayon and a piece of paper and say, draw a submarine, everybody sort of draws the long hull of the ship. And most people will draw the little periscope on top. We all draw the same picture. There is a piece of that picture, a piece of that, that, that diagram that's missing, which is in the real world, every single submarine that's ever been built has been built with compartments, compartments that essentially divide the boat up into different sections. And the primary reason for that has nothing to do with how people can and can't move around the boat or who has access to what. It's actually so that if the hull springs a leak anywhere in the boat, no matter how big or small the leak is, you can get the people out of that compartment quickly and then shut that compartment. And the only thing that floods is that one compartment, which actually allows the boat to rise to the surface. You get everybody off, you fix it, and there's no catastrophe. If you did not have those compartments and the whole sprung elite, no matter how big or small or where it is, there it is 100% that the boat is going to sink. And if there are people on it, unfortunately, they're all going to go away with the boat. And so we understand in the physical world the need to segment things, to break them up into different pieces. The problem is in the cyber world, somehow that lesson got missed. And so the other thing that I would share with you along the lines of your question is people say to me often, What's the biggest change in cyber in the last 10 years, right? Take a long horizon, a decade, which in our world in tech is forever. And the first thing that I always say is it's actually no one vendor and it's certainly not a product. The biggest change is that every board, every regulator, every CIO, every CISO, every CEO, everybody now acknowledges that no matter what you do and how much money you spend, you're going to get hit. That, that is a transformational change in the mindset around cyber. To go from thinking I can be safe all the time to no matter how good a driver I am, at some point, it's likely if I drive long enough, someone's going to drive into me, even if I really am that good and I'm not the reason for the accident. That's a huge change in state and, and we're, we're living it in real time. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <clears throat> so maybe for, for people still like slightly unfamiliar with how this works, I'm a company I'm coming to the conclusion we can't keep all the bad guys out. I hire you guys. Help us. Help us. Why don't you actually explain the term zero trust first? So actually, there's a very little definition. Fortunately, it's very few words. It, the, the term zero trust is equated with assume breach. So it's literally everything we just spoke about. Um, if you want to run a zero trust cybersecurity posture or strategy or architecture, it's not a list of vendors, Illumio included, where you go buy their stuff and you're suddenly done. It starts with having a strategy for your cyber that says, 
I'm going to try and keep the bad guys and gals out. But I also assume breach, which means that I have a strategy and a set of tools for dealing with what happens when they get in. And it's not one or the other, it's both. And so we play a role. We are a piece of that puzzle. Our role is very simple. You have these companies that have servers and cloud workloads and laptops that their employees sit in front of every day. All these things in some way are connected and talking to each other, as well as the outside world and the internet. And our job is to make sure that if one of them gets sick, it doesn't have the ability to then spread that illness to everything else inside of that company's environment. And we do it using this thing called zero trust segmentation, which just controls how things do and don't talk to each other and restricts their ability to do it openly. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm sure we could spend a few more hours on this side of it. Uh, maybe switching gears a little bit. I want to talk about business building. So um, one of the things that I love to ask uh, entrepreneurs, but especially the ones that have grown zero over the billion mark, is about this concept that us as founders are constantly being told, you need product market fit. You need better product market fit. Uh, I'm interested how you would define product market fit. Yeah, it's... I would argue that as an entrepreneur and certainly as a founder of anything, it's probably the ultimate question. The only thing that I would say is that over time and through the Illumio journey, I, at least for us, redefined it as two different things, product market fit and go-to-market fit. And I'm going to use a very sort of real example of the difference between the two, but why both of them, quite honestly, at least in my opinion, are equally important. Let's say that you're set out to build a company you want to build a product that's going to solve this problem of what happens when ransomware gets inside. How do you stop it from spreading? So you sit down and you design a product and you're either iterating on something that's already existed for years, or maybe you're sort of reimagining the whole thing from a blank piece of paper and saying nothing out there really was designed to solve this problem. So we're going to start fresh, which for PJ and I was very much the beginning of Illumio was there was nothing really doing this before Illumio and before zero trust segmentation. So we were starting with a blank piece of paper. And so in every sense of the word, you have to design a product and make sure that it fits two things, really fits within the problem you're trying to solve and fits in the real world, in the environments you're trying to solve it in. So as an extreme example, if you're going to start a company to build a piece of software that segments data centers, clouds, and laptops, then you have to make a decision about, are you trying to do that in organizations that have 50 servers and 500 laptops? Or are you trying to do it in companies that have 100,000 servers and 500,000 laptops or both? And the reason why is because I promise you to do it for the first is very different than doing it for the second. Maybe the software itself looks the same. Maybe the problem you're solving is exactly the same. But doing it in a smaller organization versus a very large global enterprise, there's all sorts of differences in terms of the requirements, in terms of the scalability of the product. So product market fit has to take into account not just the problem you're solving, but where you're going to go to solve. But then there's the other side of it, which is go to market fit. So let's say you build something that works great and solves this great problem that needs to be solved and can do it in the biggest and smallest organizations, selling to a local business versus selling to a global bank are two very different activities. That ironically, you may have a product that works great in both, 
But if you don't understand how to sell and engage and do all the minutia, like how to do the contracts in a very large company, then you may have great product market fit and not go to market fit. And I think for us, especially early on for PJ and I, we were all about product market fit and didn't really realize how important the go-to-market fit was going to be along the way. And it took time to get them both right. It did not happen overnight. Yeah. So let, let's go back over this again. Um, to repeat yourself, how would you define product market fit and how would you define, how would you define go-to-market fit? Product market fit is your ability to identify a problem that needs to be solved that presumably incumbent or existing vendors are either not solving or can't solve in, I'll call it an elegant way. And then understanding the environment that you're solving it in and your ability to operate in that environment. So to us, product market fit was all about, can somebody solve the segmentation problem in a different and better way than we can? Or do we have the right approach to solving this problem? And then where is it that we're going to go try and solve it? So in some of our public references like City and Salesforce, these are some of the biggest scaled infrastructure environments in the world. If you're going to solve this problem in those environments, that being able to achieve scale, being able to be resilient and reliable is part of product market fit. It's not just good enough to say we have a piece of software and this is what it does. It also requires us to be able to do it in an environment like that if that's part of the market we're going after. Go-to-market fit is knowing how to engage with those customers, how to sell to them, how to deal with everything from the commercial pricing all the way through the legal contracts. And again, just like product market fit, those things are very different when you're talking about global enterprise versus, let's say, the commercial mid-market. So understanding and being aligned around all those things, when you find that, you sort of put the right package together. That's where your escape velocity comes from. It's like, I think I really like this modifier, this idea. I mean, I, I'm going to put words in your mouth and then correct me, okay? But essentially, like, it's, I really liked how you said, is this an elegant solution? You know, there's like, a, there's like an implication of, of magnetism there, right? That it's, it's novel, it's not me too like everybody else, but that it's also magnetic in some way. It's, it's elegant, it's attractive. Uh, but I like those modifiers of, for who and where as part of it? No course correction at all. I think elegance is underrated. In other words, there's a lot of duct tape and a lot of band-aids in the world when it comes to technology, but that doesn't mean that it's an elegant purpose-built solution. So having the ability to say that we built something to solve this problem from the ground up the right way, that's a powerful statement when it works. But then the other half of it is understanding the difference in engaging with the CTO of, let's say, a global bank or a global manufacturer versus engaging with the IT team at a commercial mid-market company. And there's no right or wrong. And quite frankly, large, durable, sustainable companies that end up as market or category leaders, they do both. It's not an either or, but it doesn't mean that as the entrepreneur or as the CEO of a startup, and the early team, you have to at least be intellectually honest and aware of what you're doing. And do I have product market fit? And do I understand what it's going to take to go to market? And can I get all these things to work at the same time? Yeah, I'm interested how you would navigate the decision tree of like, maybe a smaller customer can pay faster, where a bigger customer can pay more and probably more reliably for multiple years. And, and how you navigate like, 
where the prize is of, of the trade-offs going those, you know, can I get more smaller customers faster? Can I get bigger customers that are more reliable, pay more? And, and how you kind of decide where to put the company's energy at any given point. It's so perfectly framed in terms of the way you're describing the reality of it and even sort of the motions around the difference in big and small, right? Big take a long time. When you get them, they tend to be incredibly valuable. They'll spend a lot of money because of their size and their budgets. Small can go a lot faster, but you need a lot of them. I think that the thing that we've learned at Illumio is as much as you may claim that you have a strategy at the beginning for this is where I'm going, a lot of times the customers end up finding you and sort of putting you on a path. And let's be very clear for Illumio. We actually got it wrong. We thought we were going to go down market at first. We believed that that would be our customer base. We couldn't have been more wrong if we tried. And it wasn't by design and it wasn't because we pivoted or changed our mind. It just turned out that zero trust segmentation when we came to market eight years ago was essentially a brand new, not well understood, arguably not even well discussed technology. And therefore, the only people interested in talking to us about it were not only large, they were the largest of the large in very heavily regulated and very security paranoid and conscious industries. You can probably guess what some of them were. It's not a secret. Banks, insurance companies, technology companies. And, and so for us, our journey was almost defined for us. And they're looking back on it with hindsight. There were some incredibly good things that happened as a result. And there were some things that I wish I could rewrite the script on because when your first few customers are the Salesforces and the JP Morgans and the cities of the world, it comes with a lot of overhead and a lot of requirements and constraints that if you're lucky enough to be able to say, well, right now I don't have to think about those folks. I'm going to focus on the middle market and we're going to have hundreds of thousands of those customers. So there are different constraints and different requirements there, but but there's no doubt about it that it's not you get one right because you went after it most of the time. I think there are some companies that have said, this is where I'm going, and they got product market and go-to-market fit right, and that was their path. But for us, the market determined where we went, and then we worked really hard to get good at being in that market. And now fast forward you know, eight years, now obviously we're lucky. We've broadened out customers that are in both the mid-market as well as the enterprise and even the global enterprise. And our job is to make sure that we can service all of them well. But it took a long time and we got a lot wrong along the way. <laughs> it kind of makes me, as you're talking, it makes me think about this idea of like, <clears throat> can you survive long enough to figure that out? We, yesterday on the show, I had the guy who started Mint and so, Mint.com and sold it to Intuit. Yep. And uh, he says, you know, outcomes are so binary a lot. Like either you made it or you didn't. You know, like if you made it, there's going to be some awesome payday. Uh, and and if you didn't, it kind of doesn't matter like how much of the company you held on to or what your valuations were along the way or all these other things didn't matter if you didn't survive kind of thing. And uh, as Could you're talking there, I'm, I'm thinking about survivability of like, you know, how can you ensure survivability while you figure out the legal and compliance because you're working with the big guys and the deal took a year longer to close than it was supposed to or I don't know. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's perfectly framed. I think the binary outcome piece is also the reality of being an entrepreneur and you have to know you're signing up for that. I, I, you know, I think it's no different than every decision we make every day, no matter how big or small, strategic or tactical it is. 
we're not getting up in the morning saying, how do we stand still? We're not getting up saying like, well, we hope it works. We're getting up saying that we're going to move forward. We're going to take some steps forward and we'll probably get kicked back a few times. We're going to make mistakes, but ultimately we believe we're going to be successful. So you have to start with that mindset. Otherwise, why do it at all? I, I definitely think that there has to be a recognition of the reality. Passion and desire get you so far. Persistence helps a lot, but the data is the data. And so what are the insurance policies that you can put on trying to get it right when you know it's going to take time? One, fundraising. So, you know, there's no doubt about it. Obviously, the market has changed a lot the last year, but for about 12 years, we were in a heck of a fundraising bull market. We were in a heck of a bull market, period. And so many companies like us took advantage of that and raised early and raised often and probably raised more than they need. And there's some good and some bad with that. But at the end of the day, that is an insurance policy on if it takes longer to get it right, you've got the capital and the capital cushion to be able to make some mistakes along the way or not just make mistakes, but also just take longer to get it right. Yeah. I do think the other piece of it, though, is and, and one that was a little less talked about, especially during the bull market, is y- you also have to remember that there's discipline and rigor and accountability that has to remain part of the conversation. Um, you know, there's an expression about revenue sort of covers all ills and sins, but it's not really covering them up in the sense that they're not going away forever. It's just temporarily brushing them aside. The only thing that does that better is funding. Funding is an amazingly powerful way to cover up mistakes. And, and the reason I say that is if you have a company that raises $100 million and let's say they use $50 million of it very well and very productively and the other $50 million not so much. There's no consequence to that if you can raise another $100 million when you run it. But the minute that the cost of that next $100 million either gets very expensive or maybe it's not even there, you're going to start looking at that first 100 very differently. And we're obviously in that world today and we hadn't been for a long time. I think the two things that you do are one, you raise when you can and you raise enough to know you're going to make mistakes, build it into the plan. And the second thing is, don't ever think that throwing money at something that isn't working is the way to fix it. That, that's actually the best advice that I got from a number of mentors early on when trying to build a company in a category that doesn't exist. The money is great when things are working because it's the accelerant that you can pour on top of things. But let's be honest, if you're spending $5 to collect a dollar and you're losing four bucks on it or whatever that math is, you can raise and spend as much as you want, but that's a problem that one day you're going to have to solve. So don't let yourself be sort of diluted into the motion of we're going to throw money at things that aren't working. Let's actually step back and say, why aren't they working? Can we fix them? And can we use the money we have as diligently as possible to fix them so that when they are working, we've got as much of that money left to be able to step on the gas? Um in today's world, that all seems really obvious, but I promise you for about 12 years, give or take, for a decade, let's say, that wasn't really the conversation that was happening in most places. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more conversations about profitability these days. Well, that's the summation of basically everything I just said in a single word. And that's the perfect way to summarize it is these businesses have to operate as businesses. And, and, and by the way, you know, all the good that we all try and do, right? It's not just building the business or what the last round valuation was with the stock price. Um, right before we got on, I was watching Satya Nadella be interviewed by John Ford on CNBC. I've been waiting all day to see it. And yes, 
a lot of the interview was about some of the announcements they're making right now. But actually, you know what the very first question was? John asked him, what are you guys doing in light of the tragedy right now in Turkey and Syria? And how are you guys reacting? And Satya said, we're, we're first and foremost trying to make sure our team is safe. We've activated all of the mechanisms we have for that. We've activated our philanthropic arm. But let's also tie it back to Microsoft can do those things and donate those things and that money and that time as a successful company. And the more successful they are, the more their ability is. That profitability word got lost for a little while, but ultimately it's not just about the valuation of the stock price. There's a lot of good that gets done when companies are able to operate that way over long periods of time. And so there, there's a lot of healthiness in this, but, but it is a transition. Yeah. I'm interested, you know, founders who might be listening today who are, you know, there's a lot of people who talk a good game. Oh, I want to build a billion dollar company. And then there's some people who actually mean it, which is no guarantee by any stretch of the imagination. But like the people who don't actually mean it, I almost feel like it's a guarantee you're not going to. Um, like if you're not even trying for that type of scale, it doesn't it seems unlikely to happen by accident, right? Um, so those folks who are, like you said, maybe they're inventing an entire new category, right? And um, there's such a big opportunity there if they can do it. But but they're not going to get a bunch of me too money. They're not going to get a bunch of me too clients. You know, like it, this is definitely like the front of the crossing the chasm <laughs> curve here, Jeffrey Moore, right? Um, when you think about advice for those founders who are like genuinely pioneering something and they need, and they're, and let's say they're going after large clients, you know, maybe it's large government, large corporate, something like this, right? Bureaucracies, headaches, all these kind of things. What kind of advice do you have in that scenario? Yeah, I, I would say it's such a great question. I would say that there's probably a few things that pop to mind. And if I was given time, more are going to flood in just because it does describe a lot of our journey. I think the first one is that um, persistence is going to end up being your best. Friend. There is no doubt about it, because what you just described is a heavy lift. I don't know how else to say it, right? Like you're not going into an incumbent category with multi-billion dollar incumbents and saying, they're legacy, they're old, they're tired. We've got a better mousetrap. There is no mousetrap. There is no incumbent. You are literally evangelizing as much as you're selling. You're oftentimes evangelizing that they should care about the problem even before you have the opportunity to evangelize why they should care about you. It is a heavy lift. And so persistence is going to be your best friend. Here's the comment that may be surprising because that one shouldn't be. Persistence can also be your worst enemy because if you don't, inform. There's this expression and I don't know where it comes from, but I love it so much, which is the best decisions are made when you drive them through your intellect, but they have the benefit of your emotion. And the worst decisions are made when you drive them through your emotion without the benefit of intellect. And I had to think about making sure I got all those words right in the right order. But I have to tell you, I don't know why I love that so much, but as an entrepreneur, I'm clearly passionate. It's not like I get up in the morning and decide to be passionate. I'm wired that way. I think it would be hard to do this job or choose this sort of professional life if you weren't wired as a passionate individual about something, whatever it is. It could be making great pizza, but, but you're going to be passionate about something to choose this path. The problem with passion is it has this amazing ability to get in the way of data and intellect. And and the reason why I say persistence is sort of your best friend, that's obvious. You have to be persistent, especially on the journey you described. 
It can be your worst enemy, though, if you let it cover up being intellectually honest and data-driven. If the, if the market is telling you that what you're doing doesn't matter, maybe for a year, that's okay. Maybe for a few years, that's okay. But at some point, the market's the market, and you're not going to evangelize your way to convincing everybody that they're wrong. You made the comment about creating a category. I actually think that there's only one constituency that creates a category. And it'll never, ever be Silicon Valley or a vendor or a venture capitalist. Customers create a category. Because a category, by definition, is a group of customers that have a common problem that they're trying to solve. Vendors may participate in the creation of the category. Somebody may be there earlier than everyone else. But vendors don't create categories. Customers do. And so, in a sense, you have to be intellectually honest and data-driven even if you're passionate. But persistence is going to be top of that list if you want to get through this. And then hopefully some level of gut and experience and data and intellect. And I say that collectively because it isn't just the CEO and founder, the team. Everybody needs to sort of have some commitment to the persistence it takes to pull it off and a big commitment to, but we're going to be open and honest and intellectually honest with ourselves about what the world is telling us. I really want to double down on this thing you said about the customer's category and the, their, their role in deciding what it is. Because um, I want to pick this apart. So let's talk about Illumino, right? Where zero trust is not this category, right? When you're showing up. And so I want to help understand, I, I want to understand what you're saying because in a way, like it wasn't, there wasn't this, this, this like zero trust customer that was sitting there waiting for the first company to get invented. And yet I agree with you on this idea of like, we don't, we don't pick how customers frame everything. C can you talk to, can you tell me more about this, the way you're thinking about this? Yeah. And because you're asking the question about Illumio and zero trust, I'm going to give more of a micro answer than a general one. Cause I think the persistence comments are true, whether truly you're starting a pizzeria or trying to build a zero trust segmentation company. You just have to be persistent and committed. I think with respect to zero trust, one of the issues with it is it got so buzzy so quickly, truly buzzy, like in a marketing sense, it became a buzz term that you had customers showing up saying, I want to be zero trust. I want to implement zero trust. What does that mean? What are you going to buy? What are you going to buy differently than what you bought last year from your cyber budget? Those answers were nowhere near crystal clear. And I'll be honest with you, I think for the majority of the world still today, they're nowhere near crystal clear. So you're seeing that play out the way that it usually does. The very large incumbent vendors are adopting the term and trying to essentially own it. They're repositioning everything they've been doing, including their legacy things for years. And suddenly overnight, it's all zero trust because the customer is now saying, I want to be zero trust. And there's a lot of marketing and arm waving going on there. But, but as is often the case underneath all the marketing and all the arm waving, there were a lot of very serious conversations about, let, let's slow down. What does zero trust really mean? Well, actually, there is a very real definition of it. It means assume, breach, and build a strategy, an architecture, and a framework for your cyber posture that assumes breach occurs. And so you're seeing the reality now start to catch up to the marketing and the arm waving which doesn't mean the arm waving is going away anytime soon. It just means customers are getting much more educated. Some of the really influential and critical analysts like a Gardner or Forrester are now chiming in in a very material way. Forrester has been doing it for a number of years, 
talking about what does this mean? How do you think about it? Let us help you to organize some of the thoughts around the ecosystem that's forming and who's in it and why. And I think we're in that still early, but that transition from the fuzzy sort of marketing term to the reality of this is what it means to implement zero trust. And yeah, eventually what will fall out of that is here's a list of vendors that you're likely going to end up doing business with as the market leaders once you adopt this for real. And for us, the thing that we, we've been saying for a long time is, look, we've been all in on zero trust for a long time, long before there was arm waving, long before there was marketing, long before there was a Forrester wave. We built the company around this concept because we actually believe it was a problem that needed to be solved. And so it's fun and it's great to see the world talking about it more. And it's even more fun to watch customers now getting serious about adopting it. And it does help us to build Illumio. But but I think in a lot of early categories, there's a lot of marketing and arm-waving and confusion. But over time, people get serious about what it means and how to do it the right way. Well, I just think we're still very early in that cycle. So you, uh, you've been great at doing a lot of speeches and you know, embracing a role as evangelist. And you know, there's, there's YouTube videos of you talking about this. Last year, two years ago, four years ago, seven years ago, like, right? Um, what advice do you have for CEOs who are recognizing, hey, having a face on the brand, hey, having, you know, getting the halo effect for our organization to have an evangelist who's out there talking about the category, talking about the product, helping sort through some of the buzz and helping customers really understand, like, like they're recognizing, you know, oh yeah, <laughs> what Andrew did is actually a good idea. Like, Maybe I should be that for our company. Maybe I should be that for our category. What advice would you have for them as they're thinking about getting the word out, becoming more of a public persona, and, and getting that platform that, that the press and customers want to listen to? Yeah, I, I have to tell you, and again, it wasn't by design at all. It wasn't something that we said when we started the company. Um, what we realized, and it wasn't until we went to market, was, wow, there's no category. Wow, we don't really fit in a Gartner Magic Quadrant, at least not neatly and clean. We're kind of evangelizing a lot more than we're selling. Again, I said, as if we knew it, we didn't. And one of the decisions at that point that I made was, look, if we're going to build this company into a sustainable, durable, valuable market leader, two things are going to be true. One, we have to really believe partly based on persistence, partly based on being honest with ourselves, but we have to maintain belief that this is going to be a category, that it is going to be a big mark, that no differently than EDR or the firewall, zero trust segmentation is going to be a thing in big and small companies. And it's going to be a thing in Japan as much as it is in France, as much as it is in the US. And we have to just believe that it's going to get there. We also have to believe that we have no idea how long it's going to take. So we better build our fundraising strategy around that. We better build our spend plans around that, right? We don't want to be right, but run out before we're right. So we influence all these things. And then it came back to the question you asked, which was there was some moment in time, the first couple of years we were in market, where I sort of adopted the role of chief evangelist. And, and we sort of used to joke that it was CEO, wasn't chief executive officer. Company wasn't big enough to need an executive officer, but we needed an evangelist, right? Big time. And okay. So I'm sorry been... to interrupt. I'm excited yeah. to hear this because 
there are so many things around the internet of um, you only have sales because you're not good enough at marketing. You only do marketing because you're not good enough at building a product, right? Yes. And then I have folks on the show who built, you know, Fred, we had Fred Vicola on. He took Casera from $100 million valuation to $20 billion valuation. And yep. he's like, yeah, product market fit will get you to $100 million or $200 million, And then you've actually got to have a revenue acquisition factory. Yes. You know, right? And and, yeah. and you look at like, if product was enough, why does Tesla need Elon Musk to be in the news all the time to, to get the attention they got, right? Like, so my- I know, that's why, that's why I'm, I'm gonna interrupt because actually I think that that is maybe one of the single best examples because everybody says, well, that company has been built without marketing, right? There are no car commercials for Tesla. You don't see them at the Super Bowl. I would argue it's probably one of the best and most efficient marketing machines ever built in the automotive industry. It's a very different marketing machine. I don't know if it was delivered by design or it happened to happen, but let's be honest, they get about as much marketing coverage as any auto company probably ever has. And we can argue about whether or not he's a genius for the way that it happened, or again, it was just luck and happenstance. But to say that Tesla was built without marketing because of the fact that you don't see Super Bowl ads is obviously farcical. And I, I, and I agree with Fred's comment 100%. Product market fit will get you so far if you want to build a sustainable, durable, market-leading, category-leading company. You need to build a go-to-market machine. I mean, look at those Tesla events. Like, get, like, that's not marketing. Like, okay, it doesn't fit into what some high school professor might call marketing, but give me a break. Um, so, but you can obviously overdo it, right? Yes. You know, let, let's say people want to embrace chief evangelist officer because they want to get to a $2.75 billion valuation or whatever you've grown to since then. Okay. Um, uh, and yet, you know, you still, have to, you still have to land and service existing customers. You still have to work on the product. You still have HR. You still have fundraising. Like, you, you, you know, being a CEO is like a game of triage. What do I do with my next 10 minutes? Right? Yeah. So what, I, what do I do with my next hour? What's, what's the highest and best use of my time? Right? Yeah. So, um, so I'll describe it as a game of context switching, not as triage. Triage ah. is a problem. It's a game of context switching because there's a lot of really good stuff during the day and there's a lot of unexpected stuff. And yes, there are problems that have to get solved. I, I would say that with the evangelistic role or the evangelism role, there's a time and a place for everything to be dialed up and dialed down. I'm evangelizing every single day. Some part of my day is evangelizing. Even when I'm not thinking I'm doing it, I'm sure it's woven into my DNA at this point. But yes, there was a period of time for a number of years where there was basically not a conference or a banking event or an investor conference where I wouldn't find a way to work it into the schedule. I did get to a point where I realized I'm doing one conference and then another one, let's say two weeks later, and I'm seeing all of the same people and not enough changes in two weeks to have a different story. So you, again, a little data driven, but there was a period of time where I felt like my primary job was I got to get out and tell the segmentation story and the Illumio story. And fortunately now, as the market has become a lot more prominent, still early, but prominent, Forrester, Gartner, like I said, incredibly influential as they start writing about it and producing charts and graphs about who's doing well in the space. All that stuff helps to relieve the need to evangelize. But in those early days, when you realize that you're shouting into the wind, like 
walk out on planes, trains, uh, automobiles, and, uh, and, you know, get out there and get that message out. Okay. So I love this. I want to go back to your advice for CEOs who specifically, maybe it's not their natural personality, or maybe they want to be humble and say, this isn't all about me. We have a whole team. Or they feel like, oh, I need to spend a lot of time on the product, you know, and, and they, they're maybe coming up with excuses to not embrace chief evangelist officer. Um, and, you know, even if they hear like, you know, a Richard Branson, right? Self-made billionaire says, my job as the chairman is to get free ink. My job is to get to the part of the newspaper where you can't even buy, to get on the front page of the newspaper where you can't even buy an ad, which obviously uh, has, has done very, very well for the Virgin Group, right? Um, yep. But people who they're considering embracing a little more Richard Branson, but they're, they have these hesitancies. Um, when it is time to ramp it up, what, what pep talk, what advice would you have for them of like, it's okay to ramp it up at a certain time? Yeah, actually, I, I think it's a fascinating question because it brings the personality piece in. So I would say that I'm going to go back to something I said before. It doesn't matter if it's, I grew up in, in New York and, and I was born in Brooklyn. So I keep saying pizza. There's a reason why it was part of my DNA growing up was New York pizza. I don't care if it's a pizzeria or it's a zero trust segmentation company where you're raising hundreds of millions of dollars. The reality is anybody who wakes up one day and says, I want to go build something. And I don't care how big or small it is or how much it's worth. Anybody who gets up and says, I want to go build something is passionate about that thing at some level. So now the answer to your question in my mind is find a way to be authentic about your passion. I happen to be an external facing CEO. My, 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 there are so many things that I love about my job, but without a doubt, the top of the list or tied at the top of the list is the time I get to spend with customers. I love it. It's in a sense, it's a happy place for me. Even when, by the way, I'm spending time with customers who are angry at us or something's wrong or there's a crisis that we're trying to solve. But it, I, it's when I feel so connected to the reason why we're building Illumio, because ultimately that is the source of truth, the voice of truth, the arbiter of truth is that, that customer on the other side of the table. So as an external facing CEO, maybe the passion comes through a little more easily, but this is authentically me. But the person who is the CTO, my co-founder, PJ, from a personality perspective, certainly may not appear to be a carbon copy of me, but I promise you that his passion is a carbon copy of mine and mine of his. That's why we started Illumia. Like underneath it all, even though the personality is authentically wildly different, the passion is identical. So I would tell that CEO who may say, well, wait a minute, I'm not that animated and I don't really love getting up in front of a camera or a crowd. I'd say, yeah, but you're passionate about something, which is why you're in that seat. Go share the passion authentically your way. And whatever that is, it will come through. And if what you're doing is important and customers care about it, trust me, Somebody will be on the other side of the stage or the camera is going to be interested because as the company and the platform, the company is becomes more visible and more important because of the problem it's solving and the customers it's solving it for. People are going to be interested in understanding why you were passionate, how you thought this up, why you're doing it. It will happen organically. And so don't try and make yourself what you're not. Be authentic to yourself, but share the passion. I love that advice. Um, well, uh, I know we're winding down on time a little bit. One more time, tell us your ideal customer and uh, where they should find you online. Oh, that's easy. Uh, so www.alumio.com. That's I-L-L-U-M-I-O. There's where you find us. Um, 
There's lots of other places to find us too. I'm not going to go through the list, but you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, all the usual places. Um, and and I would I would definitely say that in terms of the ideal customer, that's one of my favorite answers in our whole conversation. Because if we were having this conversation five years ago, maybe even three years ago, I would have talked a lot about global enterprises and big global companies. But the truth of the matter is anybody who's worried about their cyber posture, zero trust, or how to make sure that if they get hit by ransomware or breach, then it's not a catastrophe. And that's a lot of folks nowadays pick up the phone and call us or go online and find us. And we'd love to talk to you. I love it. Uh, well, to end maybe, um, why don't you share one more kind of zero to billion piece of advice for, for a founder CEO? Yeah, it's, um, again, it's a long list, right? But I think the one that more than anything, and I know I won't be the first, as a matter of fact, I'm probably in the hundreds or thousands of people who have said this, um, even to you, is that there's this thing about being an entrepreneur and a company founder and builder. I think it's true, even if you're on an early team in a small startup, the highs are never as high as they feel and the lows are never as bad as they feel. And the more that you can remember that day in and day out, the more you're going to enjoy the journey because you're going to have some days where you think you got it all figured out and you're going to have some moments where you are convinced the right thing to do is just walk away and go bury your head in the sand. And neither of them are right. Um, it's a long, long journey and try and enjoy every minute along the way. And one way to do it is moderate your expectation on the high highs and the low lows. That's great advice. Well, uh, this has been great. Thanks for making time to do this. Uh, it's such a pleasure. It's really obviously, by the way, something else that most people who do what we do are passionate about, just simply being entrepreneurs. So talking about it is intoxicating. It's a lot of fun. I love it. Okay. Uh, well, bye everyone. And uh, I'm glad you guys got to learn from Andrew.